I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that software is part of most scientific research now. From astronomy to neuroscience to chemistry to climate models. If you work in research that has not been affected by software yet, just wait. But how good is that software? How much of common best practices in software development are making it to those writing software in the sciences? Patrick Minot has written the Good Research Code Handbook. It's a website, it's concise, and it will put you on the right path to writing better software. Even if you don't write science-based software, and even if you already have a CS degree, there's some good information worth reading in here. This episode is sponsored by Rollbar. Rollbar is the leading platform that enables developers to proactively discover and resolve issues in their code, allowing them to work on continuous code improvements throughout the software development lifecycle. Rollbar has plans for all situations, from free to large enterprise. With Rollbar, developers deploy better software faster and can quickly recover from critical errors as they happen. Learn more at rollbar.com. Welcome to Test and Code. Welcome to Test and Code. Today we've got Patrick Minot. Um, yes. Uh, thanks for. I've, I've actually been practicing some French, like just a little bit, because my wife and daughter speak French. Oh, uh, wonderful. So, uh, anyway, so Patrick, welcome to the show. Um, I'm excited yeah. to have you on because I'm really excited about this project you're working on, the, the you've put together. But before we get to there, just uh, who's Patrick? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Patrick Minot. I'm a uh, neurotechnologist uh, and artificial intelligence researcher. And I have a consulting company, which is called uh, Xcore, uh, Xcore Consulting, where I do things around uh, neuro AI for different companies. Um, and I'm someone that has always uh, been at the intersection of, of academia and, um, and industry. So I did a PhD in computational neuroscience at uh, McGill University. And uh, after that, I actually went to uh, California, where I worked as a software engineer at Google. Um, I was the, uh, the first brain-computer interface engineer at uh, Facebook. Um, so working on different kinds of uh, skunkworks uh, projects. So trying to bridge that gap between uh, academia and, and academic science and industrial research. Wow, at Facebook? Yeah. Um, so at, at some point we could just, if you glance at an ad, it would count as clicking. Um, uh, maybe in the future. <laughs> well, I can't really speculate about that, but we, but uh, uh, the brain computer interface project that I was working on, you know, eventually, um, I think there's some there's uh, there's quite a bit of uh, of public uh, knowledge uh, about that uh, right now. Okay. But, you know, they're looking at different new novel interfaces for virtual reality and augmented reality. Like, what if you could? What if if you could interact with your devices just by thinking, you know, like yeah. click and then it would just happen? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> yeah, maybe or else. But who knows? I mean, changing changing the way we um uh, think. I mean, even mental mental words having to do something like that. Who knows what the effect is of having people think click seventy five thousand times a day? 
I don't know. <laughs> Depends but, on the number of clicks you want to do. Yeah. Um. So in so this is a, what you've been doing uh, lately. Did you say you have a PhD? Yeah, I do. So it's Doctor Patrick. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I uh, I try not to pull it uh, to uh, to take out the the doctor card unless because uh, my my wife is a real doctor. She's a medical doctor, so she can actually be helpful. And yeah. like a zombie apocalypse or something like she could do surgery. Whereas I'm, I'd be like, well, let's stop and think and maybe write a paper <laughs> about this for the next two years. Yeah, exactly. Very different. What'd you do in school? So what were your degrees in then? Mm, that's a good question. So uh, I actually did uh, my undergrad at McGill as well in um, physics and math. So okay. that joint uh, program. So all my buddies actually uh, went to do, you know, theoretical physics and string theory and all these things. And I was like, I think that string theory is just, it's just too hard. So I'm going to try and, and solve something else a little bit easier, the human brain. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I did six years of PhD, you know, which is, that's, uh, that's like life teaching me a lesson right there about my hubris. How much did you code in college then? A little bit. Um, so back then, actually, I um, I ran a different you know consulting outfit, which is called Five and a Half. And uh, this is going to date me, but this was like doing Flash and PHP. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, that was my side gig uh, when I was an undergrad because I you know needed to pay for college. I didn't want to take on you know, student debt. And um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's what I did. I, uh, I skipped classes during the day and I had like people like giving me notes and I would use that time instead to uh, do some programming um, okay. with, uh, with other outfits that were, you know, less rinky dinky than mine <laughs> uh, at the time. Uh, but yeah, I ended up working on some projects, you know. Uh, and then and, now how much, how much of your life now is coding? Uh, it depends. Uh, I think like, as you, you know, higher, like go higher and higher in the, uh, the echelons of, uh, every career, you end up like programming by doc, <laughs> you know, you end up like having this incredible mechanism by which you can program things by just opening up something in Google doc and then just giving requirements and then eventually it transforms into code. Um, I'm, uh, I'm speaking in jest, of course. Uh, no, I, I do about, uh, about half my time, uh, coding. Okay. I asked this because you wrote the good research handbook, the, the good research code handbook that I found out about not too long ago. And one of the things I've been interested in for a long time is uh, that there's a lot of people in the world that have to code that are not trained to code. And that's maybe an okay thing in most areas. But when we have scientific research, depending on the code being good, it concerns me. So I'm glad this is here because uh, this is uh, one of the steps in the right direction. So tell me about this this project and how it started and whatnot. Yeah, so this is kind of a, a long brewing uh, process. So at the end of my PhD, I was doing research on this like new emerging field, which is super cool, which is called deep learning. So I was around like 2012, 2013, and um, I was doing this project relating you know, deep nets with the brain, uh, which is now uh, like a pretty like well understood uh, field. But back then it was uh, totally new. And I wasted probably like a year just like trying to get together. And I would 
you know, just stumbling upon my own code because it was like larger than anything that I'd really done. And I didn't have like a good method for doing it. So at the end of my PhD, like a lot of grad students, I just said like, well, I'm going to work on this during my postdoc uh, to my advisor. And uh, like many grad students, I just ended up uh, going to a tropical island and sipping margaritas instead and then never worked on it and during my postdoc. This is like <laughs> many, many uh, grad students have uh, abandoned projects uh, like that. So during the depth of the, uh, of the pandemic, I had some some free time. And I was like, you know, this whole project, I actually think that it's, it's time to make it happen again. And so I had like yeah. a really old code base. And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to use any of that. I mean, I, I couldn't even make a lot of the packages run. Like Theano, for instance, doesn't exist anymore. And so I just decided to write it from scratch and I wrote it totally differently. And I was like, this was, was way easier than the first time around. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because I picked up some things, uh, you know, doing software engineering um, at Google and uh, doing BCI research at Facebook that could be applied for doing uh, research, like academic research. And, you know, slowly and surely I kind of, you know, integrated these practices. And I just asked people on Twitter, hey, do you care? <laughs> like, would you be interested in, in, in learning about this? Because I, I think I, I, I write code better. And the response was absolutely overwhelming. I got, um, you know, hundreds of retweets and like hundreds of messages from people like, yes, please, please, <laughs> you know, help me out. I'm a grad student. I'm, I'm drowning in this, in this technical debt. I don't know what to do. And so there was a real um, product market fit, <laughs> I guess is what you would say in the, the startup jargon. And so I, I took a couple of weeks off to, uh, to write it and release it. And the response has been uh, really positive, I think. Well, it's, it's interesting. So let's, um, I, I, one of the, the great parts about it is the roadmap. Uh, so this is kind of a, a cool uh, diagram that you've got for kind of the whole the whole uh, the whole website actually to talk about how every all the different parts come together. But um, so at the beginning uh, at the beginning you talk about set up, setting up your project correctly with things like environments and using cookie cutter even that's that's interesting. Um, and I think that's actually a cool idea for people that just want to get going quickly is to just populate my basically if people aren't familiar with cookie cutter it's a way to say i've got a uh, github project that's um that's kind of a template but it has like templating language sort of built into it and uh, you ask ask and answer a few questions and then it pre-populates your starting github repo right uh, essentially yeah exactly and uh, having that, and then you can, and then it, it's not tied to it at all after that. So you can do whatever you want with it. If, you, if you're like, oh, I don't like some of these decisions, great. But sometimes just getting your, like, if I can imagine a lot of uh, people, to, I just need to write some code. They don't really care how, how it's laid out. Just tell me the right way and just do it for me. Um, so that's a cool idea. But then you, you go through things like uh, style guides and linters and, um, and, and then some some coding practices like uh, using pure functions and separating your pure functions and side effects, and then writing tests and documenting uh, documenting the project and uh, and then social interesting at the end um, uh, with open source and pair programming. 
Um, it covers the gamut, but there's a lot of stuff you you could have left out, and there's a lot of stuff that you um, had to make decisions on where you were going to go with which direction. So, any uh, any tough parts here of to like how did if you had any tough decisions? Well, when I start on the writing project, I start with making like a really elaborate table of contents that is essentially you know as i dig deeper and deeper into the table of contents it essentially becomes like the whole book itself without <laughs> you know maybe in like slightly less words but the compression factor is very small so i think the advantage of doing things that way is that you don't have to do a lot of cutting and uh um oh. yeah so you wrote this roadmap before you wrote the rest of it or, or uh, something sort close of. to it? I, I wrote a table of contents first, and then okay. I, I reflected deeply on the table of contents, and then I started. And and uh, what I usually do is I'll write, like, let's say, like, five bullet points, and then I'll write, like, another level of, of precision inside of these five bullet points. So, like, you know, two levels, and then three levels, and then maybe I'll go down to four levels, and then I start writing. Otherwise, you just waste a tremendous amount of time um, doing a lot of refactoring. So, <laughs> so I think uh, um, I didn't end up doing a lot of refactoring for the book, except for one of the sections. Like one of the sections became way too long, uh, I, which I noticed. I can't remember. I think it was the documentation section. Like I was missing, uh, I was mixing like different kinds of documentation, and a friend of mine was like, "Please cut this. This is terrible. I hate this." <laughs> and I was like, thank you for the feedback. And then I did. And uh, yeah, you can't think about these, uh, what you write as your babies, because <laughs> otherwise you just ramble a lot. <laughs> some of the best feedback you can get feels like a gut punch. But uh, yeah, some of the best feedback I've gotten on, the, on my writing has been hard to take. And then there's a whole bunch of, there's tons of it that's just noise of just like, you should use a different word here. Okay, whatever, that's your thing whatever i find that i get better feedback when i you know about my writing so i, I also have a blog uh which is on xcore.net um and i have a lot of articles on there i have 230 of them actually that date back to 2008 um and uh over the years i've i've started uh asking people for feedback and I found that I get better feedback when I'm pretty clear with reviewers about what it is that I want. It's like, like maybe I'll say, like, do you think that this is complete? Do you think that this is an accurate representation of a sequence of events? Um, do you think that this is helpful for somebody that's coming into the subject and, and learning about it rather than like, do you think that my grammar is, is slightly off because I'm a native French speaker or something? <laughs> like, which is a very different kind of, uh, uh, of feedback. Yeah. I like that idea, uh, and I, I kind of did that with the second edition of uh, the PyTest book. I I had a whole bunch of tech reviewers that I included that are not not who you'd normally think of as a tech reviewer. Like I, I included a couple teachers, and I said uh, for them, for instance, I said um, I don't really uh, I don't expect you to give me feedback on like whether or not I'm teaching the subject correctly. It's um, I'm also including these questions at the end to like. Uh, exercises for the reader to do afterwards and i'd like you to think about whether those are really appropriate if you were going to teach this in like a high school setting or something that's great yeah. focusing on i like that focus on what feedback you're offering and then well, now we're totally on a tangent but 
with code review also, um, that's one of the things I like to do in projects as well, code projects, is to have a list of things to tell people what sort of feedback to give. Um, because um, some things are good, like this this function is so long that I don't I can't remember what it's doing by the time I get to the end of it. That's reasonable feedback. Uh, but things like I didn't like your variable name. Um, that's not. It depends. I mean, if the variable name is really egregious, you know, it's like AAA two, which sometimes people do. But yeah, you you have a good you have a really good point, which is you know you you want to tell people like what you expect out of them in order to be able yeah. to get good review. And I think that in doing so, the feedback that you get hurts a lot less because, I mean, you, you put yourself in that situation, so it's your own fault, kind of. Uh, but also, it's just more useful. Uh, so back to the, uh, the handbook, um, have you had any, any feedback from people? Or is it, are people using it? And oh, yeah, it? yeah, yeah, absolutely. I get a, I've gotten a, a lot of uh, positive feedback. And the way that I, I actually staged it so that I would get lots of feedback at different points. Um, so I did a kind of a pre-release in September where I asked people in September of last year, uh, where I asked people like, Hey, what do you think of, uh, about, uh, about this, you know, just send me and I'll send you the link. And it was just like one of those like Netlify, like giant, uh, uh, subdomains that okay. uh, moved into the ether after that. So I could, you know, experiment a little bit. And, uh, and the first thing that I, uh, that I got uh, was uh, uh, from a professor at, uh, at Stanford, a uh, person I tremendously respect and um, that, um, that has written a lot of like, books that ended up being New York Times bestseller and like super famous guy. He said, I actually can't read this thing <laughs> because your CSS is broken. And I was like, ah, damn it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like you work so hard. And then. Yeah, you just realize like these uh, these kinds of things. So uh, I learned something about the uh, about the night mode or dark mode in um, that it's a default in a lot of Macs now, and that you should absolutely test your websites to make sure it actually still works in, in dark mode because uh, it mm. might not. <laughs> uh, so that was some uh, some early feedback. But through that uh, that process, I think I got thirty or thirty to fifty DMs. From different people and i sent them you know the link and at first i didn't ask them for specific feedback and i didn't get a lot of feedback like people said it's great okay well that's not super useful or like eh, i didn't like it <laughs> again not awesome. super useful yeah um so eventually i mean i had some questions about how people reacted to it so i wrote them down and i'm like please answer these five questions and send me an email and here's the deadline because i want to publish this and then I got like really good, useful feedback. And by good, I, I don't mean like, you know, the valence is not necessarily positive, but just, you know, uh, saying like, I didn't understand this. I think it would be good if you had more exercises. What if you had a project that uh, was like an overview that put all of these concepts together? Um, yeah. And so I used that and then I went off into uh you know doing real work for uh, for three four months and i had some time over the holidays and i just cranked out like one after the other this this feedback especially this project the the, the overarching project was a real pain to actually uh get uh, get working but i'm happy that i did it that didn't make the whole thing kind of gel together so what's the project 
Um, now I'm having a blank. <laughs> it's been a little while. Is it this Zips Law thing? Zip. Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, exactly. A sample project, Zips Law, and um, I got that from Carpentries. I'm pretty sure. Right. So at first, I wanted to do something that was more about my field of research, uh, and it turned out that. I had to explain people like my field of research, which did a six-year PhD to do. So it's a terrible idea. It's like, come on. Um, in order to understand like what the heck I was talking about, you would have to, you know, know a little bit more about my field. And I just this is way too complicated. So <laughs> other people have done a good job of making these overarching projects. Why not? I try to redo this, and then the advantage, uh, a second advantage, is that people can compare. How I did it versus how other people have done it in the past, and see like the slight tweaks that have come from it, and so forth. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really like about it is because you don't you don't really. I mean, you do have links some in a few places to um, other people's projects and work um, where appropriate, uh, and but it is your. This is one like a way to do things, and and it's worked for you, and that's um, that's. I actually think it'd be cool if we had a whole bunch of things like this of, of uh, this is, this is my approach to doing code in a, in a research setting, um, but in really any setting. And, and then, uh, and then people can like tell it's, it's like having somebody that knows how to do this sort of stuff there to, to, to ask questions to, if you are like, Oh, I, how do I save this stuff? Oh, I go look at this handbook so it's cool I like yeah it. It, that was a conscious decision to try not to uh be um uh, try not to be uh, uh just like giving lists of tools that could all do the same thing just show the one method and if you want to try something else that's fine but here's the one that you should start with I, i'm sure that this has happened to you that you're researching a new project, like somebody is like, oh, I need to do X, Y, Z. And then uh, you go into this rabbit hole of researching these different packages and like, you know, advantages, disadvantages, feature sets, like, does it work? How's the documentation? Like, what's the number of stars, blah, 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 right? And if yeah. you don't even know, like, if you're just a beginner or like intermediate in this like general uh, area, it's a huge uh, time waster. And uh, if somebody just would have told you, like, just use this thing, you would have been so much happier than <laughs> undergoing all this research. I mean, of course, if you undergo all the research, you know, you learn and, and that's great. But yeah, you just need somebody to tell you, just use this package and do this, this, like these three magic uh, incantations, and then you'll actually like be productive and get started. For an ex for example, um, what in this, this uh, project, at least there's a, a side note that says, the, the amount of cruft for command line interfaces could be reduced significantly using the click library. That's a cool hint because um, uh, I've seen a lot of people that don't want to like explore all the different ways to do command line interfaces and they just read how to do it with the standard library. And I, I really want, like, that's one of my feedbacks that I give a lot of people is don't use the standard library for command line interface stuff because stuff like click and things just are easier. So try that um but uh i it, it's 
I love having opinions, and I love that you included testing. It's kind of important in uh, <laughs> that's kind in of in, uh, yeah, that's kind of important in your world. Yeah, and I and it seems like it should be really important in like scientific and research code. Is it? Is this is unusual for you to include testing? Very unusual. I think that uh, so I, I did like a little bit of a survey of other kinds of resources that people. I mean, I'm not the first person, obviously. Like think, think about the subject. There's um, there's an RSC book. There's materials from the Turing Institute, from the Software Carpentries, uh, etc. But I think that testing is always like chapter thirteen. You know, like the, <laughs> the one like just way after the good stuff and you know maybe they'll ram it a little bit in chapter 11 chapter 12 and then you get to this stuff and then it's the end of the book but i wanted to to me it's such a uh, it's such a natural experience um to be doing testing and it's it's so well adapted to the work of scientists i figured well why don't i like bring it in a little bit but then i realized that i think that the people at I think that intuitively it makes sense. And the way that um, uh, I have a quote in there in the, in the testing session uh, that comes from uh, Ariel Roken uh, about how scientists test their code. They naturally do it. So if you're a scientist that's writing software, uh, you know you check every function that you write. You put like some uh, some inputs. Uh, you see if it runs without error, and then you see if the results make sense. And then it just goes poof into the ether <laughs> because people do it on the command line or they'll do it in the Jupyter notebook or something. And then they'll delete that code because it's not the real code. And I was like, well, don't do that. Just keep keep the stuff. And that will help you tremendously down the line because you're going to have regressions. And like, so like the first part totally makes sense. And then when you explain to people, just, Add an assert, like you got a bug, just add an assert there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you did the whole debugging process. Keep a trace of it because it's going to happen again. And um, I was, um, I was uh, uh, co-programming with, uh, I was pair programming with, uh, with a friend of mine and who's more of a, you know, uh, like, a, like an artist. Uh, that's more of his thing. And I was like, oh, okay, you have a bug there. Let's just add an assert. And he was like, assert? I was like, yeah, yeah. So then you can check that your assumptions are true. And his mind just stopped working for the next, you know, 10 minutes. It was like, oh, I could use this here. I could use this there. This would be so great. I'm like, yes, exactly. You've got it. <laughs> and, and I realized that in most of the scientific uh, code that I've seen, there's no asserts unless it's like NumPy or whatever, like like really like uh, low level libraries. But yeah. in higher level stuff, like there's, I don't see a lot of testing. I don't see a lot of asserts, and yeah, it feels like a missed opportunity because you know people understand like yeah, double check your research and like all these things. So they're already like kind of doing it in an intuitive way. But what if you automate it? And I think like um, if I could if people just take one thing out of this handbook and that's the thing that comes out of it. They're like, oh, I should use a search every once in a while. Uh, that would make me so happy. <laughs> just, so you're meaning um, also you, also automated testing, but mostly just within the like bulletproofing their code, it, like a function that has some input and you think it's always going to be a list or something like that. You should, or you think it's always going to be, you know, a, uh, 
floating point number greater than four or something like that you can go ahead and just assert that so that it is that what you mean like asserts in the actual code or asserts in the test code um you can have asserts in the test code but i was thinking uh about inline tests yeah um, that basically they give some bumpers to your inputs um one that i really like to do so so scientists uh use a lot uh, numpy right that's yeah. uh that's bread and butter and one of the things that is very very tricky with numpy is reshapes resizes and uh messing around with the different dimensions um you know permutations and so forth and it's often necessary for um uh, doing things like uh, like matrix multiplications and so forth. And it's incredibly tricky. So rather than, uh, than writing it in the code, like I expect the, f the, the first dimension to be this size, the second dimension to be that size, and the third dimension to be the size. Like for instance, if I have spatial temporal data, I can write it as X, Y, and T. Or I can write it as Y, X, and T, which is, uh, Often that that mm. often happens. I can have it as color x, y, and t, or color y, x, and t. So instead of writing it inside of a uh, inside of the the, the comment, just write as an as, as an assertion the first thing. So you know if I expect like c, x, y, and t, then I know that for instance like c shouldn't be two hundred fifty six because you know you don't have two hundred fifty six color channels. You would have one, three, or four. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Just uh, like um, having some uh, teaching people to to put some checks within their code just to val validate. And like you said, you're you're doing it anyway. Uh, you're putting it in a comment. Just put it as an assert as well. Um, and then yeah, it's yeah, and that just opens up a whole new world. So okay, well, once you have these, like maybe your asserts are like too long, or maybe you're realizing that you're asserting things for test inputs or something, which is a very different kind of of uh, of testing yeah. so why don't you take this thing that you already know asserts and then just put it in its own separate function that you can that you can test yeah yeah you know mind blown <laughs> well and one of the things that drives me crazy is this so i, I was listening to um uh, uh peter Thiel's book on uh, zero to one and one of the things he he said was um uh like describe one of the questions he asks people in interviews is, uh, tell me something that you believe that most people believe the opposite. Um, and and I, I was trying to think, and one of the things that comes up with me all the time is uh, that writing software with tests takes less time than writing software without tests. And, because, and it, seems, it seems like obvious to me that it takes less time if you're testing it while you're writing it but um but every tdd book the or tutorial i've ever seen talks about unit testing and saying at first it's going to take longer but hang in there because eventually it's going to be faster or or it, it's not faster but it'll yes it takes longer but you'll save in maintenance cost or yes it takes longer but you'll have less bugs and and i see the same thing you've seen is that people are testing it anyway they're they're right, but they're throwing away the code. So the only difference in what I what I call automated testing and unit testing and what everybody else does is I don't throw away the tests. I just put them in a test folder um, and and keep them. Um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's similar 
it's a, it's similar to what we were talking about uh, with respect to writing a table of contents before you actually write a text. It's kind yeah. of like giving yourself a framework, and then you're kind of reasoning about it at a higher level than the than the deep down. So you have like less ways of shooting yourself in the foot. And like that, and that's a so write an outline first. That's easy advice to give. It's the some of the best advice for writing, and most people are not going to take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, if you make it, if you make it like really, really easy, um, sometimes the tooling helps uh, making yeah. these things. So, like uh, the thing that forces me personally to do a lot of outlining is that I use Notion, right? Which is uh, okay. it's like a software to write like notes and stuff, and uh, just writing bullet points is really, 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 really easy in Notion. You know, that's really like what it's uh, what it's particularly good at. And then moving stuff around is really easy. So, hmm. you know, if it's easy, then you tend to do it. Um, and if yeah. it's not easy, then you don't tend to do it. Uh, it's, it's for the same reason that if you have maybe if you have like exercise machines at home, you're maybe more likely to use them than if you have to drive for a half hour to go to the gym. Yes, exactly. I, I think one of the things that I did in the guide that I'm happy about is that uh, I use like positive based arguments like the carrot rather than the stick. Um, <laughs> one thing that I've seen, and it's it's fine because it is true, like you can really shoot yourself in the foot in a thoroughly dangerous way. Uh, so an example that people like to use a lot is this one case of economists that were doing research in uh, Excel rather than you know doing it in R or something. And this was at like right before the financial um, uh, crisis and found out that if you inject a lot of money into the economy, it actually hurt GDP uh, after a certain point. And that was a, a big impetus for uh, austerity, uh, austerity policies uh, during the, yeah. uh, the 2008 financial crisis. It turned out that uh, they had selected the wrong cell range inside of Excel. And so had like missed like six other countries, and if you added those, then the uh, the effect went away, and in fact, it went the other way. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but I, I feel like uh, uh, telling students like if you don't have good coding practices, then you may mess up the world economy. I think it's not a good like it's a very like fear based kind of thing. Sometimes the consequences are dire, of course. But I think like more you more, could kill uh, people, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a little bit like it's a little bit much, right? Uh, um, but I think just telling students like you're not gonna waste like six months of your life like working on code that's bad. Um and yeah, yeah, you know, hate your code every day. I, I think it's kind of a better, you know, framing for it. But yeah, I mean, these things have consequences down the line if you work on something that actually impacts people. Which so, you know, hopefully, most researchers work on stuff that you know they can think of the um, the the impact down the line. Then, yeah, you know, doing things in the good way and in, in proper ways is is uh, very useful. Well, that's that's one of the places actually I'm a little scared of uh, for our future uh, is that um, teaching people to test. I guess that's one of the bits is um, you're building up software is made large systems are made by small pieces and so you can test the smaller pieces easier than you can test the whole thing sometimes um, sometimes it's easier to test the whole thing but um 
uh, so test where you can. Uh, if it's easier to test as a system, test as a system. It's it, but the th pieces that are difficult uh, in are a lot of this data science and machine learning stuff. Um, so making sure that the the pieces are working right, and also like you were saying, they grab didn't grab enough of the the table data. That that's validating that your data is correct. It's not really validating the code. That's but there's a lot of that going on in machine learning and data science, and we're we're basing policy on it. Um, how do we get to a point where we really trust that the the machine learning and data science and AI and all that stuff is really working? Do you know in the in the correct way? Yeah. Oh, that's a uh, uh, I mean, huge. There's a whole uh, you know scientific research endeavor. Uh, you know about uh, bias and algorithms and and, uh, and AI. It's it's the, I think the short answer is it's really 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 hard. Um, and that goes beyond just like whether the code is is correct, but whether you're reasoning correctly about yeah. things is uh, uh, is another thing. Um, you know, I work with or I've worked in the past with um, uh, Conrad Cording, who's uh, does a lot of of stuff in causality. Research. So there's this whole area of, of uh, research which is about inferring causality. A lot of the stuff that we observe in the world is, well, most of the data that exists that is fed to machine learning algorithms is not of a causal nature, right? There's no intervention. There's no point at which, like a designer, like a like a person decided, let's put half of these people with this treatment and the other half of, of the people with these treatments. Rather, we have these um all this gradient of of non-experiments of observed data and we have to reason about causality right we're like well if i do more of this will this thing change and it turns out that it's a really really hard problem that uh, that people have uh, have thought about deeply and there's multiple different frameworks for uh, uh for dealing with that there's the rubin framework from um um uh yeah, Donna Rubin. Uh, there's uh, um, the work of uh, Hudia Pearl uh, at UCLA. Um, people have come up with different kinds of framework for for thinking about these uh, these things. But it's very easy. For instance, like one complex thing that can happen is you can reason. Oh, like every time that this happens, this other thing happens, and it's just a coincidence. Yeah. Or the causality is. Um, is actually due to a common uh, kind of causality, and then the intervention that you would use actually does the opposite effect that you uh, that you wanted to. Um, mm. So, so that's kind of a, uh, its own uh, separate research. So, making algorithms trustable very very difficult uh, in, uh, in yes. machine learning. It's 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 an its own field of research, and it hasn't been I think like fully uh, fully resolved. Yeah, and that was a almost a trick question. I was just curious what your answer to that was. Oh, read the uh, read. Uh, okay, I'll give you a, a good answer for like the the layman's uh, explanation. Uh, read uh, Hidea Pearl's "The Book of Why." Uh, that's a very good overview of the field and the kinds of uh, yeah, the kinds of trade offs that that you have to do in that field. Okay, well, I'm gonna. Can you send me a link to this after that? Oh yeah, absolutely. We can we can add yeah. it in. It's that's really well written. Um, the his his more technical manuals are uh, impossible to uh, they're inscrutable. 
basically. But uh, but the okay. high level stuff is good. Like the high level, like really makes you think about. Well, I want to um, I want to give a shout out to you before we wrap this up. That oh, yeah. um, putting making testing be important at a couple levels at both uh, both the unit level and at the at larger levels and making it accessible with your handbook through 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 the handbook, uh, making it accessible to people that are possibly new to larger coding projects. Um, the, the, the idea, the mindset of I'm writing some code, how do I, how do I know that it's working? Um, and I'm going to write an automated test for it. And, and how do I know, how do I trust the data? Let's, let's, uh, let's put checks in place to make sure the data is what I think it's going to be. And, uh, and then separating these are, this is algorithm. This is just grunt work coding stuff so I can easily test it separating uh, functional coding from uh, state change code separating those things that sort of mindset and having it be a constant thing that people start learning how to do um, when they're coding I think can help bring that mindset up to larger fields so that we have everybody in the industry saying when they see a large algorithm uh, saying but do we trust the data and and has everything inside been tested? And just that mindset of how do we know that it's working? Um, it it's it's way it's really important, and I think that mindset shift needs to start at the function level, and then it, and then it'll make its way up to the systems once everybody has it. Hopefully, uh, I I agree uh, I agree entirely. Um, and you're right, you know, like once you get to a certain level of abstraction, like you just kind of assume as an end user that all the stuff underneath it kind of works <laughs> and if uh, people don't have those those you know good engineering practices then that can be very dangerous right because you trust something and it actually is not trustable right and that's one of the things i love about you people using numpy and stuff like that is because those those open source projects do have a lot of eyes on them and they are well tested yeah. uh and if there and if there is an issue, and the issues do come up, um, but they get found fairly quickly. So, anyway, um, cool. Well, so anything exciting uh, coming up in your future that that you're excited about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm. Uh, I, I talked a, a little bit uh, early on about uh, you know the field of neuro AI. So I have uh, this uh, upcoming article which I'm about to publish uh, in a pretty nice uh, uh, publication. That I can talk about right now, but uh, if you want to hear about that, just follow me on Twitter, and I assume that the link will be uh, at the bottom uh, uh, yes. of the, the podcast notes. Yep. Uh, awesome. So thanks for talking to us today, Patrick, and thank you. good luck with everything. Thank you, Patrick. Very fun talk, and thanks for including testing in the handbook. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Rollbar. With Rollbar, developers deploy better software faster. Learn more at rollbar.com. The link to the Good Research Code Handbook, as well as other links, is at testandcode.com slash 193. That's all for now. Now go out and test something.